Welcome to AuthorBlurb.com. I'm your host, Eric Maynard. So today, I'm speaking with Jonathan. Jonathan R. Rose. We discuss his books, discuss why he wrote the way he does, why you can basically understand where he pulls his settings from, and he does boil it down and tell you where they come from in the settings of it. So with that being said, I hope you really do enjoy the show. I am making some changes, such as I'm no longer going to be talking to you at the end of the show. After our conversation is done, it's done. That's the end. And, of course, I want to thank you for being here. And things like that means that I'm not going to be telling you at the end of the show that you need to sit, go tell everybody about AuthorBlurb.com. I'm not going to tell you that you need to go to AuthorBlurb.com to find articles, to find things about the shows, to find things about the authors, to find articles that the authors have written and sent for you to enjoy. I'm not going to tell you any of that at the end of the show. It's just going to be the end. So, with that, I appreciate you being here. I hope you enjoyed the show. Shoot me a line. Let me know how I'm doing. Of course, you can do that at authorblurb.com. And feel free to tell everybody that you know. I'm sure they're going to want to find that next author that they're going to love as well. So thank you and enjoy. And uh, hopefully, Jonathan Allrose is the guy that you find to be a great author that you just want to tell people about as well. If not, we have plenty of other authors to enjoy. Other than that, it is a great conversation. So I'm here with Jonathan R. Rose. Jonathan's written four books, and they're in different genres. One's in Spanish, which, like I was telling you beforehand, I don't speak a lick of. In fact, I hmm. think I got a D, and that was the teacher being generous to me in my Spanish <laughs> classes. So you also wrote in horror, or I believe it was horror you wrote, and yeah, two contemporaries. Book, yeah. So mm -hmm. as... Anybody that's paid attention to this show knows it's always better for the author to go and describe themselves in their books. So I'm going to just turn it over to you. Like I said, if you could tell me a bit about yourself, about your books, and then we'll just start discussing them. Sounds good. Uh, first, just want to say thank you for the opportunity. And I uh, always love a good chance to talk about literature, <laughs> my books, and so I'm really enjoying it. So thank you very much for that. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as for me, I've been writing professionally since about 2015 with the publishing of my first book, but I've been writing like a lot of writers way before that. Right. Um, but I really started getting into it publishing in about 2015. Uh, before that, I was taking it really seriously maybe a few years before when I packed up my old 92 Camry and drove down to Mexico City. And uh, that's where I lived, and uh, I spent almost a little over a decade there before living in Argentina for two years. And I did it because I wanted to be a writer, and Toronto was and remains far too expensive to juggle both writing as much as you can while also paying bills. <laughs> so that's a bit of my history um, and why I did what I did, and also explains why I wrote a book in Spanish, too. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's a little of my background. So, okay, so let's... The Spanish book was your first book. It's a Spanish no. white. Yes or the no? The Spanish book was my second book, actually. All right. So what was the horror one your first book then? It was. Um, it's called Carry On. There it is here. Uh, that was the first novel. It was published by Montag Press. Um, they're based out of Oakland, California. Uh, that was published in 2015. Um, the story kind of came to me 
<laughs> it was right in the middle of the Walking Dead craze, and which has been dragging on way too long. <laughs> uh, but um, it's just the idea of everyone was obsessed with uh, monsters, zombies, and flesh-eating monsters, and what right. it would be like to evade them. I kind of got bored with that, and I just always kept wondering what it would be like from the monster's perspective. What are they thinking? Are they a mindless beast, or do they have thoughts or anything like that? So with that idea, I wrote this book, which is just basically like a Walking Dead episode, but from the zombies' perspective and why they want to eat people. and Not so much emotionally, but more like an animal. Like They're not evil. They're not mean. They don't wish you bad. They're just hungry. And then from there, um, the whole thing, I, I said it, if um, such a zombie apocalypse, so to speak, took place in uh, a major city, like a Mexico city, and that it was there to kind of show the difference between the monsters who are just hungry, but no different than a shark or anything like that, versus the people, which I based on the uh, some of the Walking Dead characters, the heroic cop who tortures the monsters and kind of like to mess around a little with who's really evil versus who's just acting on instinct. So I was proud of the book. It was pretty, it was pretty intense and it was told that. And, uh, I like that it was the type of book that either got one star or five star reviews. So (laughs) I enjoyed that part of it. So Uh, let me ask this about it then, because I'm kind of curious on, you said it was written from the zombies or the monsters point of view. Yes. So, is it just zombies, or is there like a slew of different creatures in the book? Um, I don't really get into the specifics of like the type of monster, but it's just one type. Um, it's more just, I don't really get into a past or a how it happened, nothing like that. It's just, right. he just, just wakes up and just wants to eat people. <laughs> I understand. Just more so- of like a carnivorous, flesh-eating monster. That's probably the best I'd describe it. All right, so... With that flesh-eating monster, mm-hmm. do, are they having thoughts? Is there a dialogue in their heads or between each other somehow? Or I'm just curious on how the story yeah. kind of comes along. Not really. Um, thoughts, more instinctive. More um, almost in the way like a child would. That um, the monster simply reacts to the environment. Um, obviously, it's fueled by hunger. But as things occur, as they encounter more people and then encounter the cruelty of those people and see what those people are doing to other monsters that look like, I don't want to say him or her, but it, because it's a monster, um, and kind of adapts based on how they're seeing that. So initially, the monster's just hungry. It doesn't hate people, but your food. But then as it starts seeing the cruelty done by by some of these people... The monster gets more aggressive. It gets because it feels like it has to act in kind. You're going to torture me. Well, you're going to get angry. So it it, rea- it starts to develop emotionally and not in a positive manner by mm-hmm. the way that the people are treating it. But on the flip side, it's hard to blame the people because you are trying to eat them. Right. So I really wanted to get into the idea of um, what's evil, what's not, and that kind of concept. Um, just I wanted to add a little more layers to it. Verse, like, I was getting bored of the whole idea of just monsters are coming, run, and then torture them because they're bad. And it was too simplified. So I yeah. wanted to kind of get into it. So, so it's yeah, a circular effect of mm-hmm. one, what one does creates another effect from the other side and vice versa and just the effects that they have on each other. That, 
Exactly. And then just how it develops over the course of a relatively short period of time. And he just encounter the monster just encounters different types of people, poor people, rich people, sadistic people, um, people who are just trying to get away, everything like that. And it's almost like seeing chaos and pandemonium through the monster's point of view. But I, it was interesting. I was it was really fun to write. It sounds like it would be. So yeah. let's go to the Spanish book. So you were da- so first off, there's a oh. lot of lot of cities. Between mm-hmm. Canada and Mex and going into Mexico and Argentina and all this, mm-hmm. what made you decide to go to Argentina and into Mexico to follow the writing career? What was the mindset there? Because, like I said, there's a lot of cities. I grew up in a farm town where you can get a decent house for like thirty grand. So <laughs> there's plenty of cheap areas in between. True. Um, well, the decision, it wasn't just financial. Um, I've always loved traveling, always. That's, if, if I could say, what do I love more than storytelling, and it tends to be right with it, it's travel. Like, um, since I was 18 years old into high school exchange program in Denmark, I just fell in love with it. Um, I can't stop. It's addictive. And so after that, um, I got a job for an airline for a number of years, which just opened up the whole world to me. And mm-hmm. it was almost like work for a couple months, a lot, then travel for a couple months. And I would do that for about four or five years. And I just I just loved it. I would always be in a different country, um, meeting different people, and just kind of immersing myself. But after a few years of doing that, I kind of got, not bored, but I kind of um, wanted more than just the glimpses. It wasn't enough for me to just be in a place for a month because I felt too much like a tourist. And I knew I was missing out on the stories of the places I was going. So after that, I told myself, I want to live in different places. I want to like stay in these places and really just see what the day-to-day is like, not just the highlights. And so with Mexico, um, there's a lot of personal reasons too. I'm good friends there. I was in a relationship at the time that really meant a lot and it was there and I so I wanted to go there too so it just kind of added more and it was almost just saying yeah I want to go there and so packed up the car and the, the joke is I just drove until they spoke a different language <laughs> and so um, I just kept going down I went there um, I would visit initially took a lot of visits to Mexico and just really started falling in love with it and so that's um, continued and then I after I left the airline job I said well why not and I want to write and everything kind of the pieces kind of fell together and I was in a point in my life where I knew <laughs> I was still pretty young in my early 20s but I just knew if I don't do it now I won't and right. I did not want to just nine to five it do a year and then get to regular life I didn't want to do that I still don't and so I drove down and um, ten years later I didn't speak a word of Spanish when I got there. <laughs> um, crossing the border, I had a little dictionary. There's a lot of funny stories with that. But um, immersion in every way. It wasn't just language. It was cultural. It was social. I just really immersed in it and was so grateful because of so many people I encountered allowed me to immerse, wanted me to immerse, encouraged it. And I just fell in love with it and now like a third of my life was spent in Latin America so needless to say um, the stories that I would just observe and watch and be told to me were stories I wanted to tell 
And um, in the case of this book, Gato y Lobo, this book meant a lot because it was a book that was told to me. It was a teacher, and she had these experiences, and uh, a meeting was set up, and um, she asked if I would be interested in writing this story that she personally observed, because the book is based on actual events, and it blew my mind, and so we sat, talked, she told me this story for a few hours, and I said, I have to write this, and it meant a lot that she trusted me, like someone who's not Mexican, who's not from there, but it didn't matter to her. She didn't care about that. She just said... Um, well, you know, do you want to tell it? And I want it to be told, and I'm not a writer. So I said, I would love to. I wrote it, and um, beyond publishing, beyond if people will like it, none of that mattered initially. All that mattered is, is this teacher who gave me this story, is, it, is she going to like it? Did I do it justice? Did I do it faithfully? Because if she said no, I would have scrapped it. Right. And she cried when she read it. She loved it. And uh, that, to me, meant so much. Because the book, it's um, just about two kids. It's like Romeo and Juliet in 2020, based out of Mexico City, but very reflective of what, it, what it's like to be a student there, dealing with, diff- with issues that aren't necessarily only in a Mexico City or any Latin city, but, are, but can be related to in a lot of places. But dealing with things like machismo, dealing with things like um, teen pregnancy, dealing with things like the inability of teachers to connect with their kids, the lack of sexual education, all of these real issues, and all put together in this fascinating story of like these individual students that came together ultimately led to a tragedy. And so it was just this compelling book. And from there, the book has been read by students throughout Mexico, and they love it. And it had an ambiguous ending, and they wrote their own. Most students who don't read a lot, And some students who were in indigenous schools where Spanish isn't even their first language, where they speak Nahuatl, and they loved it. And to tell me via Zoom, because this was all happening during the pandemic when I had to come back here, to have them tell me, like, you know, I can relate to this. I get these characters. I know people like this. It it meant a tremendous amount. And so we're still in the process of promoting it and uh, getting it out there. But it meant a lot. And it was a big encompassing of a lot of things I learned down in Mexico. I understand. So are you considering putting it in English, or is it going to just stay Spanish? Uh, Open to all. Um, There's definitely uh, motivation from the uh, publisher of this book, Swampo, and they're doing a great job of it, and they're really promoting it and pushing it, getting into people's consciousness down there, and want to really spread it out there because it's based there. It's in the language, but definitely have ambitions to get it in English, because like I said, it's a relatable story. It's a Romeo and Juliet taking place in a Mexico, in a modern Mexico city, and so it definitely want to get it out to as many people who want to read it. I've even written a play version of it, and I'm currently trying to possibly get that out, and that's in English. So a lot of right. multi-pronged attack for it to get it out there, but well, really a smart route. Yeah. So, all right. So mm-hmm. now we still have two more books to discuss. So what was the next one you wrote? Because it it goes from the horror, mm-hmm. YA, then your next two mm-hmm. are contemporary. <laughs> they and are. That, that's kind of an odd progression, but it's not unheard of. So how did you end up going that route? And then what made you write, or what is the books? Um, well, first for the genre aspect, um, well, again, like I said, the story, I was approached. 
So I didn't view it like in the sense of genre. It was more just I was approached to write Gato y Lobo. Right. And I just loved it. Like, I mean, the basis is of this young girl who goes to class with cat eye, cat contact lenses, who almost dresses, acts, moves like a cat, which is what gato means in Spanish. Okay. And, and yet it's accepted because that's just how she chose to express herself. So it dig deep into individuality and things like that. Whereas the boy she meets is named Lobo, which means wolf. And he has a beard and he moves like a wolf and they just combine. And so those things just kind of led to, I guess, what could be called like young adult for the genre. The horror genre, I just always loved horror. I really yeah. like those. I love that. But I wanted to do something that would um, not offend, but really hit people. I, I don't like horror that's PG. I don't like that. It's, it's contradictory to me. If you're going to be horror, be horrific. That's like I've always loved those French movies like Martyrs or Inside that, yeah, there's a lot of violence. It's very um, gory. It's very visceral, but it's not stupid. It's not right. gratuitous. It's not just for the sake of, look, here's blood. Let's pour more buckets unless it's really fun, like an evil death. But <laughs> um, I, that's so the point of Carrion is there's a lot of I don't want to say social commentary. But there is a lot of subtext to it, a lot of metaphor, allegory even. So that was important to me. And for my contemporary books, uh, third one is called The Spirit of Laughter. Sorry, I put that right in front of me. <laughs> it's Actually, putting Spirit it in front makes it easier for people to see it. Ah, okay. Back so, up. There you go. So, there yeah, we go. It's so, called yeah. The Spirit of Laughter. And um, this story, like Carry On, like Gato y Lobo, was inspired by my time in Mexico. And other Latin cities, be it Bogota or Quito or Lima, Peru, or all over. Um, it's about a student, uh, a bit of a Bart Simpson type, a bit of a, you know, Dennis the Menace type. That, mm -hmm. that type that you're not seeing as much anymore. The, the troublemaker, sure, but not malicious and right. smart, who doesn't like authority when authority is abusing its power. Mm -hmm. And so the story takes place in a school. And it's just, and it's about him pretty much versus an evil principal. So evil that kids nickname her evil and they call her evil Espinosa. And um, it's just about um, the setting of the school is very metaphorical, another allegory, which I guess I, I really enjoy writing. I love, that's why genre to me doesn't really, I'm not, I don't feel restricted by it. Right. It's one, I just like to tell a story that reflects reality albeit in a creative, imaginative way. And if that leads to horror, if that leads to other genres, even romance, I don't care. As long as it's really reflecting reality. That, to me, is the basis of how I write what I love to write. I love reality. I think it's amazing in the sense of the real things that happen are incredible. But you don't have to tell them in a dry, boring way. You can do it any way you want, if it's creative, exciting, and imaginative. So this story is about um, the student, and he, um, <clears throat> so, sorry, I got a little lost. His name is Francisco, and what he does is he's tasked with having to paint portraits of all his students as a punishment, but it's also reflective because the principal makes him do it so she can save money and not have to pay somebody to do the portraits. So it, it's a lot, it's about corruption, it's about abuse of power, it's about um, tyranny, and it all takes place in a school. But it's also about resisting it. It's about not revolution directly, 
but it's just about resisting it. And the, the concept of the title, The Spirit of Laughter, is that first you have to diminish the tyrant. You have to laugh in its face. You have to bring it down to a level where it's not feared so absolutely. And if you can laugh at it, that enables you to almost see it eye to eye or even look down on it. And that can be a springboard for resisting it, for challenging it, and ultimately defeating it. And so the whole story kind of talks about that, but from the perspective of a high school kid against his evil principal and just a lot of um, little minor subplots in there. I don't want to give away too much. but I understand. Um, so is, but yeah. this, is this book written for like new adults or young adults, or is it more written for a adult audience looking back and trying to relate their their past to this situation because contemporary doesn't scream YA to me right I think both um I would gear more toward adult but there's nothing um extreme where it's something that would completely turn off teenagers so I think both I wrote it from, I wrote it from the perspective of Francisco the student, and I, uh, I love looking back to how I, I was a kid like that. Right. I didn't like authority. I was in, de- in detention every day. I was always arguing. I was always, I just didn't like it. Like, even now, if someone gives me a rule and it doesn't make sense, I'm going to question it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a little more mature than I was in high school. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. Um, but it's that I haven't lost that mentality that you shouldn't just accept what you're told just because somebody in a position of power tells you. And especially if what you're told hurts others or exploits others or leads to damage of others. And so I wanted to really maintain that to what I knew as a child, what I knew as a young adult and as an adult, and applied that to the, all the characters in the, in the book. So I, don't, I think teenagers could enjoy it a lot. Um, but I also think adults could too. And like what you said, looking back, but there's a, it's very applicable to adult scenarios, be it politics, be it so many other different situations. And again, it was based not directly. I don't like getting too specific about settings. If I think this setting can be applicable to a huge region or different continents or countries, but it was based on things I've seen in Mexico city. It was inspired directly by a collection of murals I saw near UNAM, the National University, and in other parts of 43 students who were killed in a place called in Ayotzinapa in uh, the state of Guerrero. And it was a very big deal in Mexico. I mean, there's unfortunately a lot of tragic incidences, whether it's the ABC school in Sonora where 49 kids lost their lives because of a fire as a result of corruption, as a result of not building the school safe enough so they couldn't escape. And then these 43 students, they were killed under what is still called suspicious circumstances. They never found their bodies They, while the parents were begging for it, regardless of inquiries into it. And it was a very angering time. And I was there and I saw the anger in so many people and the frustration and just the just the lack of accountability and that really inspired it. And you see these murals throughout the city of that incident and countless others. And it was those murals that inspired it. So a part of the book, a big part is that Francisco has to paint 92 murals. And I chose that number not arbitrarily because it's 43 plus 49, the ABC school in Ayotzinapa and how these murals have an enormous impact on not just him, 
but also the teacher and something and the principal and things that evolve. Again, I don't want to ruin and right. give things away, but uh, it had a really deep rooted sense in what I was seeing firsthand. And so when you see those murals on the walls of kids, of um, young adults, teenagers, and their lives lost because of, for lack of a better word, evil or evil intentions. So right. I wanted to really attack that. It, I was angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so oh, I wanted I to tell that. a story that uh, reflected that anger and showed that it can lead to something. So basically, it sounds to me like there's a lot of emotion in the book to drive you as long as well as basically a don't stand for something that you see is wrong. Mm-hmm. But it sounds interesting and sounds like it would be a fun read personally. So let's Thank go you. to let's go to your final book, yeah. which is another contemporary. So yeah. can you tell me a bit about that one? Of course. Uh, this is the newest book. It's called Wedlock. Yep. Uh, love the cover. I still love it every time I see it. It was done uh, by an artist named Jonathan Arivalo out of Colombia. And uh, he just did a great job. Um, really captured the point of what I wanted to get across with it. Um, this book is interesting because while it was just released um, just a few months ago, actually, I have less, uh, about a month ago. All right. So it's very new. I've actually been working on it off and on since my very first arrival to Mexico to live 10 years ago. It was one of those books where I would write it, not like it, revamp it, put it away, write more, get back to it. So I must have rewritten this about a dozen times, always cutting it, getting it right, changing it based on how I felt and what I've seen. But uh, the point of the story was um, the same kind of emotion as the spirit of laughter, the same kind of... uh, not direct anger, but just things I would see that would upset me or things that I didn't agree with or things that I saw and I wanted to write about. And so this was revolving around uh, women and just young women in particular and how they're treated and the notion of machismo, which I don't agree with and I think is stupid. The idea so of just... Let me, let me interrupt things. you. I'm sorry. So yeah. you've said machizo twice. Machismo, uh, yeah. Machismo. So again, mm-hmm. failed Spanish. So... I think I know what it is, but one, I'm not 100% sure, and two, I'm sure, if I'm not sure, there's a lot of people that don't know or are in mm-hmm. the same boat as me. So can you explain, since you're using that phrase, what is machizo? Or, well, what do you think What do you think it is? I'm actually so curious. I'm thinking that it's looking at a overly masculine, so on that front, I look at masculinity as two ways. You can either be, as I was raised, be a proper man, be strong protect women, protect the weaker, and do what is supposed to be helpful to the world. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's still open the doors for women, pull out the chairs, help the gentleman thing, which I know some people Chill are, over. yeah, which mm-hmm. I know people aren't for. Now, there, I do believe in toxic masculinity, which is those people that are just so focused on I need to be strong, I need to be tough, I need to be hard, I need to be all this thing, and they become jerks, and they become, like, almost violent, almost aggressively about it. Instead of Mm -hmm. trying to be good and try to be helpful, they're being the type of people that are trying to drag others down so they feel better. You've got it pretty well defined, in a sense, yeah. So, um, the toxic aspect. Okay. Um, a lot of it, too, and it's not just confined to a Latin American thing. It's all over the world. A lot of right. it is culturally influenced. Um, 
and everywhere it's just different influences from different cultures but it's a lot of it's ingrained that notion of the man is everything the patriarch patriarchal kind of concept that uh even that thing that goes by that you want a son more than a daughter that the son is the prince and the daughter should clean or that just the man is superior and it's a man's world that kind of attitude and as well what you said with the toxic aspect the aggression the violence it causes, the um, all of these aspects, and to see it, and again, not just in Latin America, but all over. Right. But there, when I was there, I was seeing it. And um, but yeah, machismo is that. It's that male superiority that is just stupid, <laughs> and it's right. just it's just stupid. I don't agree with it one bit. Um, right. But so taking that. I wanted to dig deeper into it as well because a part of machismo that um, isn't talked about enough is that it's not just men that influence it. Unfortunately, like a lot of mothers raise their daughters to in, not just endure it, but ex like, but to accept it, to perpetuate it. They raise their sons to be that way because that's all they know. Right. And it's, can't blame them. Like this is how they were raised, how their mothers and grandmothers were raised. And it's very, this goes Culture. back a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to shed light on that too, that it's a problem that it, while men do it, it's perpetuated and fueled from all sides. It's very ingrained. It's not something that can be solved in a couple of years or something when it goes back centuries and generations. Right. So, but I still think we're not far along enough in terms of, a lot of people talk about awareness, but it's, it's not nuanced enough, in my opinion. It's very one-sided, good, bad, villain, hero, do this, don't do that, and it's just not that simple. No. You can't sum up something that's generational in, some, in simplistic terms. So for this book, while I by no means was able to sum it all up and define it, um, I just wanted to tell a simpler story in the notion more direct just about a young woman she comes from a universe uh, a highway town those little towns you see in the highways they're throughout mm -hmm. mexico and a lot of places there a couple restaurants the road splits that through you never really see people she's from one of those towns that you just drive through then she wants to go to university in the main city and she goes and it's her dream and she's doing it and then she meets a guy his name is diego um and she meets him and the woman's name is Elena, and she meets him, and he seems like Prince Charming, perfect. He's sweet, he's nice, he, he adores her, he spoils her, he's just the perfect man, Prince Charming. And I wanted to ruin that narrative right. of Prince Charming, and I wanted to add um, a lot to it that the concept of a macho man, a toxic masculine man isn't always just this grotesque version of this man that beats women up and is misogynistic and all of that. It can come from other places. It can come from, I don't say good intention. Well, yeah, it can come from good intention mm -hmm. that I want to keep her safe. I want to protect her. I'm obsessed with her protection. She must be protected. And I got all and that attitude, how it can become, how it can become very deformed how it can be lead to very dark, demented places, but it starts from a good place. And so in this story, I don't want to give out, I don't want to give away too much, but he, um, he goes in, he goes very far with his ambitions to protect her. Um, and I, 
invoked a lot of uh, Black Mirror sensibility. I wouldn't okay. call it straight science fiction, but there are those aspects where he does something that, while it's not happening now, it could. And I, and I wanted to write it in a way that wouldn't shock people, that they wouldn't be like, oh, that would never happen. Again, I love reality. I wanted to keep it realistic, even if it was completely imagined. Right. And so the story just is describes this relationship, this toxic relationship, where on the surface, people who see it don't, see what's actually happening because they ask her like does he hit you no does he yell at you no does he protect you does he love you more than anyone so on the surface everyone's like oh then you're what are you complaining about this is a great thing it's just like no but you don't get it he's gone too far he loves too much and so it's a story that really invokes that and it was really interesting to do so it's almost like i describe it a lot as uh, what would happen if you had a Prince Charming story set in a uh, Mexico City again, but with a mix of Black Mirror to it? Okay, so it almost sounds like there's a um, like a sense of compulsive, obsessive compulsiveness in the behavior of the guy. Mm-hmm. So is it is this going off of the culture down in Mexico? Is in I know you said it's buried throughout generation and generation. Is there also the aspect in there showing the other side of fit or is it just focused on that one couple and the mochizo or the extremely toxic masculinity, the guys portraying? Um, I, I always try with everything I write to invoke as much nuance as I can. I love nuance and I, whenever I see it lacking in a story, I always kind of tune the story out a little because everything is great to me. Everything is the in-between. The extremes of good, bad are too simple. I don't like it. So I tried to show as much nuance as I could to show as many perspectives as I could. The focus of the story is on the main relationship between Elena and Diego Right. But it also shows the views and perspectives of some of Elena's friends who don't help much or Elena's mother or doctors they encounter. Just people they see kind of add more dimensions to it. But um, it's not just about like the culture or like I, what I wanted to do was I didn't want to write something that was just going to be a one-sided critique of, say, Mexican culture. That's right. unfair. I had no ambition of doing that because to do that and then not show the other side would be irresponsible in my opinion. It would just be a weak story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to show, I didn't focus as much on the culture specificities as much as I focused more just on what would go through a man's mind and a woman's mind under these circumstances. And that's and so initially, I always approached the Diego character as I always reminded myself he's not evil, he's not not like the principal in the spirit of laughter. She's right. she's malicious intent. That's she's evil. Right. But he's not. He 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 really does love her. Right. That's I always kept reminding myself of that. Anytime I would go a little too villainish or whatever, he's not a villain. He's not evil. He's just warped in how he wants to show his love and stuff like that. And a lot of that warped nature is influenced by other things he sees or people he talks to. Because a big part of it is he tells her, he's just like, like, it's very dangerous. So I need to protect you. I need to keep you very close to me. 
he's not wrong. Right. Um, in that, and be it in Mexico or be it in, in, in lots of other countries around the world, the, the United States, Canada too, anywhere. Mm-hmm. This notion where he, he sees the news, he sees statistics. In Mexico particularly, he's aware of feminicide, the right. murder of women. He's aware sexual assaults and all these things that, again, happen around the world. Mm-hmm. And he's aware of it. And in his mind, he's thinking, well, I'm a good man chivalrous even by protecting this woman I love from that so as much as it shows this warped man and how he views love and relationships it also I also wanted to show that it didn't come from nowhere it didn't just come from a ridiculous notion of I'm gonna no he's seeing what he's seeing as he reacting and so I always want when a reader reads the work to not just see it one perspective, but others. To be just like, you know, this guy's nuts. Sure, I'm not going to disagree, but why? Right. And then to look at it from other perspectives. And almost for her, be like, oh, why would she be with him? We'll see it from her perspective. He does keep her safe. He does give her a life that she otherwise knew she wouldn't have. She swept up. So that's what I try to do with as much work as uh, anything I write. I always try to do that, to almost challenge the reader that right when you want to give a simple kind of reaction, I'm going to make it hard on you. I'm going to make you go, yeah, but. And I yeah. think I, those are the type of stories I love, the ones that make you go, yeah, but. I understand. So, I mean, that sounds interesting as well. So what what type of people do you expect to really get into wedlock? I mean, what people do you think? It definitely is not YA. That's without a question. New adults maybe, but adults as well but what type of area do you think would draw somebody more into that story um i think people i agree with you it wouldn't be for 12 or 13 year olds but i definitely think um late high school even um definitely college university adults um people i think i'll say it with all four of my books people want to be challenged people who want to read a book that's going to make them question things that's going to make them Again, I want to reiterate again, but the yeah, but types, the types that if you just want like background stuff or an easy read or something that you can breeze through, be done and forget about. I try to not do that. I want it to linger. I want it to. I always try to create stories that make you question what you thought or Mm -hmm. think or see, but also are firmly rooted in reality so you're not going yeah this would never happen this is hopelessly unrealistic people aren't like this this i don't like that so i think people who are into that kind of work who like uh, i always would like hbo drama types real character pieces things that the dramas that people are the characters do what you really believe the characters would do even if the circumstances seem outlandish but you can't really like wave your hand and be like, nah, this would never happen because you're almost looking at it like, yeah, but it, but it would under that character. Engrossing, engrossing type stories. Those are the stories I love. And mm-hmm. so I think people who are interested in that, like, um, I don't say complex, but not simplified. People right. who like nuance in their stories. All right. So what I try to achieve. Understand. So now. Just listening to you talk, I kind of have a question because it sounds like it's a complex story and usually a lot of the complex stories I see going like either one of three ways. Hmm. Either it's solely focused on the story, 
and the characters are secondary to the plot. It's focused on the characters and the, they're just pushing the plot along or they meet somewhere in the middle. Which direction do you tend to go with, with these? Like, so wedlock, for an example, mm-hmm. is that focus on the character building her history, building her emotions, building that connection in the story is unfolding around her in that sense, or is it she's coming along with the events that are happening and you get to know her as the story progresses. Um, I think, uh, not to take the safe answer, but I definitely would say a bit of the both. But I do try to always focus on more character-driven first um, because I like a good plot. I don't mm-hmm. just like randomness and like, kind of just let's have them just go freewheeling through because that's so easy to lose a reader and, it's, and it, things just spiral and it becomes boring. Right. Um, but I also find that when a story is entirely plot driven, it's easy. And I see it a lot um, where mm-hmm. things become the agenda, the message, and it becomes overpowering where you're just like, oh, it's very it becomes predictable where right. I find when a story is just all plot, you can tell whoever created it had an intention, a very strong bias. Like I want to prove this point or I want to show this message. And to me, personally, those types of stories become very after-school special. Um, they become corny a lot. Right. And also, what happens is the, the predictability makes it boring. Mm-hmm. Because in, the, in a story like that, you know what the character is going to do. Because right. you already know, based in the first few pages, okay, this is going to be about this. So the characters have to fit that. Like you said, where the characters fit into it. So I don't want to do that. I'd never like to do that. But... I do like to have a little structure, and I do see an end point in my head usually when I'm starting and going through. I'll change it as things happen. Like, oh, right. you know, the character wouldn't do this, so let's shift this. But I have a general idea. So it, I would definitely say both, but I do try to lean more toward character where I always ask myself, would the character do this? Would okay. they think this, say this, feel this? And if I don't think so, I'll cut it. And uh, rather than making them do it, feel it, see it, whatever, based on the message or plot I want to do. So I'm very, I try to be flexible, but I always let the characters lead the way. Okay. So now let me ask this because we're getting close to the end. Hmm. What are you actually planning on or do you have any plans for a follow-up book? With the conversation, it sounds like you're planning on, you're going to end up writing more. Do you have mm-hmm. something already planned? Or are you taking a break? What's going on? I wish I could take a break. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, <laughs> I always have, um, there's always a conflict where it's, I love the writing. I love the creating of the stories. I love it. I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I right. just do it all the time. I hate the idea of, okay, how do I get this published? How do I promote this? How do I get this? So it's hard. It's draining. Mm-hmm. It's such a challenge. And that part of it, I'm sure like a lot of writers could probably relate to, is I don't enjoy it all. It puts it in your head, like, I want to quit. I don't want to do this. It's too much hassle. But it just goes back to the love of the story and just, ah, oh, but I want to write something else. So I've already written a book. It's actually a nonfiction novel that I'm currently trying to get out. It's called The Heroes We Want and The Heroes We Get. It's a family story. It's a Canadian-based story, 30 years in the making about um, my own stepbrother who was caught in a fire that burned 98% of his body 
Hmm. And um, it happened back in 1988. And in that year, he was the second most famous Canadian in the world. And the whole book I wrote is about the 30 years that followed and what happens when the cameras aren't on you anymore, when the, when the country and people don't love you anymore, and that those people's lives keep going. And that he wasn't exceptional, just a normal guy caught up in fame and stuff and everything that happened. So I finished that. There's another book I want to write. Um, I want it to revolve around immigration because that's what I do as a job, too. I mm -hmm. write for an immigration lawyer. And I work on um, files to help refugees stay in Canada. So I hear their stories. And so I try to just get absorbed in those stories and retell them in the hopes to help them stay. But when you get all those stories, it definitely inspires more. Right. So I'm kind of screwed where I know I'm going to write more whether I want to or not because there's just too many great stories. And um, as I said, um, I love reality. I love realistic stories. I don't. I'm not a big fan of fantasy. I'm, it's all good for people who love it. That's great. Right. I don't. I love reality, and I like trying to tell stories as realistic as possible to really show the real stories people endure, normal people, regular people, stuff like that. So when you're into that, every time you go outside and take a walk or have conversations, you just hear a new one that you're like, that's incredible. Right. So, yeah, so I'm going to always keep going, and I can't help it no matter what. <laughs> it sounds perfect. So now I have a profile of you on authorblurb.com where people can find all the links you've given me. So mm -hmm. they can go in, they can look, find your links, find you, try to get in touch with you possibly. Where do you prefer them to go if they want to reach out to you or if they want to find your books? Uh, definitely my website, um, jonathanrrose.com. It's simple. Um, so it's an easy one to remember. Um, everything is there. All the books are there that can be ordered on Amazon. Um, even some short stories I've published, the links to those short stories are there. Um, any media appearances I've done, everything is there. My uh, Twitter is there, LinkedIn, everything is there. So I would definitely encourage anybody interested in me or my work to go to www.jonathanrrose.com. It's all one word, no spaces, no dashes, no nothing. <laughs> so it's very simple. It's wonderfully designed, and I'm really happy with it. So anybody interested, definitely go there. Sounds perfect. Thank you very much for coming on. We're going to end the conversation for everybody else, but we're going to talk a little bit afterwards, and then Good. we'll be seeing you soon, hopefully. All right. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope everyone else enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. <laughs> I enjoyed your time. Thank you.